But bring your Bibles and your notes so you can take notes during this time. Kids, stay put. You're just going to scream whenever it's time for you to go. But the rest of us, open your Bibles up to the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, chapter 21 is where I want to begin this morning. The thing about Matthew 21, today is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we have the recorded, this recorded in Matthew. It's in the other Gospels as well. But in Matthew chapter 21, that Jesus is, in, is preparing. This is the last week of his life. The last week of Jesus' life. And he has been anticipating this for some time. Since Matthew chapter 16, his teaching has been focused on heading to the cross. And as we get to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And he enters into Jerusalem. He is riding on a donkey. And then people are responding to him in ways that are in fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And so let's look together in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible close to you. This is on page 826 in a pew Bible. I encourage you to follow along with us. Matthew chapter 21 begins by saying this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them. Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet, saying, Say say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. And that's how the Easter week begins. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, very humbly, seated on a donkey. But that riding on a donkey was telling the Israelites that Jesus is indeed the king. He is the king that has been prophesied. And so they're excited. The king has arrived, and they're expecting Jesus at this point to be a political, economic, and military deliverer. That's who they were hoping was showing up, because one day Jesus will be all that. But they didn't fully understand why Jesus was coming into Jerusalem at this point. Jesus knew it clearly because he had told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and there he would be beaten and that he would die and that he would raise. He knows how all this is going to unfold, but the people, they, they're not sure what's going on with this. And we see this because as this week progresses, on Sunday they're shouting, Save now, Hosanna, this is the son of David. But by Thursday night, the voice of the crowd is going to say, crucify him. We're going to see Jesus moves from being a prophet with people that have great promise to someone they see as a criminal who needs to die. And all of this is according to God's plan. 
the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the Romans leaders, and even God's sovereign plan all work together on this week to bring us to the culmination, in many ways the pinnacle of, of, of world history with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we consider what is happening here in this misunderstanding of Jesus, what we're going to spend time looking at this morning are four key passages from each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at a key verse in each one of those uh, books to help us to understand why did Jesus come. Now, for those of you who have been in church, this is not going to be new information, but it's information that I trust will stir you up and stir your heart. Uh, For those of you who are kind of checking out Christianity, uh, these are four significant points about why Jesus came so that we get it right so as we come to Easter next week, we know what to expect. And so our first passage is in the book of Matthew. So turn back a chapter to chapter uh, 20, verse 28. Chapter 20, verse 28. And in this, Jesus, there's some... Discussion amongst the disciples about who's going to be the greatest, and they're kind of jockeying for position. And Jesus says to them, and it begins in verse 26. We'll start there. Matthew 20, 26, it says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that verse is what we would say the key verse of the book of Matthew. Even the Son of Man, this is the eternal Son of God, Jesus, who's from all of eternity, he's the creator of the world. It says he did not come into our world to be served, it says, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Right now, let's turn to the book of Mark. Okay, we're going to make this easy for you in these first two big points. Okay? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And it's a similar context. It's the same context. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, this is on page 847 in the Pew Bible. We see, read something that's very similar. Verse 43 begins by saying this. Chapter 10, verse 45. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you say, didn't we just hear that? Yes. Okay. So what that makes it easy, we have four Gospels, and rather than having four big ideas, we're only going to have three because these first two, Matthew and Mark, have the same big idea. And what we see in this big, first big idea is this, that Jesus came for us, that Jesus came to give us life and to free us from a debt that we could never repay. Think what the verse says. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Okay, so he is humbling himself to serve and to give his life, we're going to see that at the cross, as a ransom. And that idea of ransom helps us to understand that if there's a ransom to be paid, it needs to be paid because somebody's being held captive. Somebody's being held captive. And this debt and this price that needs to be paid for us to be released is something we can't pay on our own. And so as we understand this idea of the debt that we owe, that we see in your Bible to Titus chapter 3. It was a few more books back. If you're 
Um, using a pew Bible, Titus chapter 3 is on page 998. What I want us to see in this is this idea of a ransom, of a debt, that this payment has to be made because something is holding us captive. And the question is, what is holding us captive? In Titus chapter 3, begin in verse 3, and it says this, For we ourselves, okay, so the writer of Titus, Titus is talking about himself and his readers, putting us all in the same boat. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish. Anybody here been foolish in the past? Yep. Been disobedient. Yep. Led astray. Yep. And then here's the key. Slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. But when the grace and the goodness of loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And verse 3 captures this idea. It says that, that we, were, it, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, if we're paying close to what that's saying, we're slaves. And most of us would say, what were we slaves to? Our immediate answer would be what? We, before Christ, we were slaves to sin. Okay? And, and that's correct. But this is describing our sins as we're enslaved to passions and pleasures. What are passions? Passions are things we want. Passions are things that we pursue. Pleasures are things we endure. And so the question would be, well, how could I be enslaved to something I endure? I mean, I enjoy. How could I be enslaved to passions? How could I be enslaved to my, my pleasures? Because, I mean, that doesn't sound like slavery if I like, if I like it. And we, we see this, and we understand this idea of being enslaved to our pleasures and passions, and we see this clearly when we think about slavery, when we think about the idea of addictions. We think about drugs, alcohol, various things that would, in, would enslave us. That we see that, that there's this, this, this high, this desire that that gives us, and I'm getting something from that, and that is desire that captures me and grabs hold of my heart, and I can't break free of it. We see that kind of slavery pretty clearly. But the slavery we often miss is other kinds of slavery that are maybe a little more subtle and a little more, more respectable. We would see things that enslave us, things, subtle things like the praise of others. Other people patting us on the back. We li- How many of you like that? How many of you like for people to pat you on the back and tell you, good job? We like that. How many of you like others to think highly of you? We all do. Right? We want others to think highly of us. As we think about other kinds of pleasures that we have, we have the pleasure of the applause of other people. We have the pleasure of, of possessions. How many of you have some possession that brings you joy? We all do, right? We have possessions that bring us joy and delight. We like success. We like things like food. How many of you like food? All right? We like food. All right? Exercise. Oh, maybe, right? These variety of things, that they're all things that are, that we could say could be are good things, but these good things are things we find pleasure in. They're things that we, we find delight in. And the Scriptures are telling us that 
these are the kinds of things that enslave us. And think about how the approval of others enslaves us. The approval of others enslaves us because there are times that we know that God has called us to be believers distinct from the world, that to be people who speak the truth in love. And yet how many of you are often concerned about what you say to somebody else, then becoming upset with you or thinking negatively of you, and you kind of back away and don't say anything? Why don't we say anything? Because we're enslaved to the desire to see them think highly of us. We can think of things that, um, we can think of just having people agree with us. We like people to agree with us. And what happens when they don't? How often do we go to battle or even we go to war when somebody doesn't agree with us? And why is that? It's because we are being held captive by our loves. That we know that's not what God wants. God, we know God doesn't want me to be saying some of the things I say, acting some of the ways that I act whenever I'm not getting my way, and yet I do it anyway. Why is that? Because we get enslaved to various lusts. And in our passage here that we are learning that we're all enslaved, we've all been enslaved in various ways. And what has Jesus come to do? Jesus has come to free us from that slavery. And so we need Jesus, that we need Jesus because apart from Him, we are enslaved to our sin. We're enslaved to all kinds of sin. And it's easy to think about the big, ugly sins, but they're subtle sins that capture our hearts. And we need Jesus to release them from us, release us from them. They're very acceptable kinds of sins and cultural, and they don't ruin our lives, but they separate us from God. And we need to be rescued from this. And what has Jesus done? Well, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Back in the Bible, to the book of Galatians, and your pew Bible is on page 974, Galatians chapter 4. And I want us to see this idea of slavery. What has Jesus done to release us from this slavery? Again, Jesus says that he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Galatians 4.4. 4 begins by saying this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, that idea of redeem is to pay the price for, to redeem, ransom, those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent, his spirit of, uh, sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What has Jesus done for us? Jesus has come to free us. He has paid the price with his blood. The currency of the the transaction of him paying was the blood of Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of the cup, it's going to remind us that Jesus shed his blood to pay the price to set us free. To set us free. His body was given for us. His body was broken. On the cross, he was crucified for us. To set us free from slavery. To purchase us as to be children in his family. And that's the beautiful thing we see in this. And it says that we are no longer slaves, but we are free, and that we become his children. We cry, Abba, Father. It's the idea of daddy. It's a term of endearment. 
which is a wonderful picture because we consider who are we apart from, apart from the gospel, that we're creatures, that God has made us in his image. We're image bearers, but we're fallen, and we've sinned, and we're rebels, and we deserve death and hell. But Jesus has come to free us from that, and now he gives us an additional title. Not only are we creatures and rebels, but through Jesus Christ, we now become beloved sons and daughters. It's a beautiful picture. The God is our Father. He loves us. And He loves us by giving His Son, Jesus, to give us new life. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, it is this first big point that I want us to remember, that we are slaves to our lusts, slaves to our desires, slaves to our, des- um, our pleasures apart from Jesus. But He has come to die, give Himself, to free us, and give us new life. And so let that be the focus as we look to the Lord and the Lord's Supper this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have loved us. The Lord, you see us in the midst of being held captive, held captive certainly by sin, held captive certainly by the enemy. The Lord, we also recognize that we're easily held captive by our own pleasures and our own desires. But God, we thank you that you've loved us enough that Jesus has come not so that we would serve him, but that he could serve us. And Lord, in that picture of his love and serving us, coming at just the right time in history, born of a woman, born under the law, to pay the price, to free us from slavery, and yet not to leave us, but then to adopt us as beloved sons and daughters. And so God, we thank you for the richness of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. us that we could never repay we're enslaved to sin but jesus has come and redeemed us for us we looked at the first two books of the of the new testament matthew and mark both of those taught us that the the key theme in both of those books is that jesus did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many as we turn to the book of luke to see a key verse in the book of luke we're going to find in luke chapter 19 Another idea that gives us a picture of why did Jesus come? What was the mission of the Messiah so that we understand it correctly? Luke chapter 19, this is on page 878 in your pew Bible. Luke 19:10. And it says this. For the son of man, it's Jesus talking about himself, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. A real simple verse, right? Jesus came, why did he come? To seek and to save the lost. And as we understand those ideas, it's a beautiful picture that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but he came to seek and save us to also to transform us. And so that's the first point or second point in your outline this morning is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost so that we can live transformed lives. You see, apart from Christ, we recognize that we are not only enslaved to sin, but apart from Christ, we live in darkness. The book of John actually tells us that we love the darkness. 
We love doing things our way. We love doing things in a way that, that, that we don't want God's full light shining on. We don't want the guilt. We don't want the burden of all that. And so we love the darkness. And as a result of that, we're lost. And the idea of being lost, um, I think about being lost. My mom often tells the story of my brother and I. It was in the fall, and uh, there's a cornfield by our house, and my brother and I were missing. And um, it was harvest time, and their combines were running in the field. So as a parent, what are you thinking? Where is my kid? And, I mean, my mom is not somebody who worries. Um, she had three kids, three boys. And, but anyway, they were worried about us. And uh, they're looking, they're stuck, make sure the combines are stopped and things, and so trying to make sure that everything is all right. And they end up, story is, they find us, and they found us just playing in the cornfield. We had no idea we were lost, right? And we think about that idea of that kids can be lost, playing in the cornfield, having a great time, and realizing there is real danger in a cornfield in the fall during harvest, right? And yet we're completely oblivious to that going on. So we're just out playing in the field. As we think about our own life spiritually, that really captures us. You see, apart from Christ, we're enslaved to our sin, we're doing what we want, we like it, and the scriptures here says that we're lost, that we don't even know what we're looking, we don't even know that we're lost, we're living our lives, and yet what does God do? In his goodness and in his grace, he came looking for us. Even when we didn't know we were lost. Before we were looking for him, before we realized our need, God was already working in our hearts. He was already working in our lives. He's already working in the history of the world to be bringing the Messiah to us, to seek and to save the lost. And what we are lost in is we're lost in our sin, we're lost in our lust, we're lost in our pleasures, we're lost doing life our own way. But Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. That what he came to do is to speak truth, to proclaim good news. But as Jesus proclaimed good news, people didn't hear it as good news. Because he says, the thing you are lost in, the field that you are wandering in, a field of your own desires and pleasures, is a field that is going to lead to your destruction. The wages of sin is death. That we live in darkness and rebels against God. That we deserve the wrath of God. And yet we don't know it, we're oblivious to it, and yet Jesus comes, turns on those lights, and just like us, when people turn the lights on to our sin, we don't like it. And they didn't like it either. As Jesus began talking, certainly the the bad sinners recognized their sin. But the people that are much more like us, upright, moral, church-going, people like that, Okay, what, what is that? They hated his message because they didn't want to think that they were sinners. And Jesus turned the lights on their hearts too. And as Jesus turned the lights on in our hearts, he is pursuing us. He is coming to us to seek and to save the lost. And when the lights come on, we begin to see the ugliness of our sin. We begin to see our real need, that, that we are helpless and hopeless apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet he shows up to give us life. And so we need Jesus because apart from him we live in the darkness. But by faith in Jesus we are saved. We are saved to live like him. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Those verses are on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 4. And we see this contrast of lostness and foundness. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. This is on page 978 in your pew Bible. 
You guys are already there? You can beat me to it. I'm using all kinds of pages turning. So, okay, Ephesians 4, you're there, right? Ephesians 4, verse 17 says this. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, okay, as unbelievers do. So, how do I, so he's talking to believers here, and he's telling us as believers that don't walk like unbelievers, because what was our condition apart from that? It says this, that don't walk as the Gentiles in the futility or the emptiness of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so we see here, our minds are darkened, our understanding's not right. We don't think right apart from God. We don't think right. We don't have the right desires. It says here that we've lost all sensitivity. We've become callous to the things of God. And yet God in his grace comes to us. And look what verse 20 says. He says, but you, but that, but you have not learned Christ in this way. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, the truth is in Jesus. And what did this light do for us? God gives us light, brings us into, out of from the darkness. And it says in verse 21, 22, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In this darkness, the light has come. I'm in the light of God. And it says in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And there are two ways of living described in this passage. The old way of living, I live according to my desires, my feelings, my emotions. I do what I do because I desire what I desire. I want what I want, and I'm just going to do whatever I want. Over here, though, that's the old way. When I'm renewed in my mind, when God finds me, he seeks the lost, he finds me, he turns the lights on, I'm no longer living this feeling-oriented life. I transition to living a truth-oriented life. I live according to God's truth. I live according to his principles. And I do that not simply because I want to live differently, because a new love has captured my heart. Because as we say often, I do what I do. Why? Because I want what I want. And I want what I want because I love what I love. As an unbeliever, what do I love? Me. I am the first and most thing in my life. That's what I love. And so what do I do? I do the things that I want. What do I want? The things that I love. What's that? It's me. It's all about me. And it can look a whole variety of ways. It can look really nice and friendly or real mean and nasty, but it's still all about me. But when Jesus opens our eyes and he finds us, whenever he releases us from slavery, he changes our hearts so that we no longer primarily love ourselves, but now we love him. And this love for him is what transforms us. And now what do I want? I want the things that God wants. I want to please him. What do I do? I do the things that please him. Why? Because I love him. And the gospel is about capturing our love. The gospel is about our love for God as opposed to our love for self. And what did Jesus do? He came to seek and to save the lost. We're wanderers. We're lost. And he has come for us. 
Well, as we see this idea that in, in Matthew and Mark that we are enslaved to sin, that Jesus came to rescue us. In Luke, we find ourselves lost, and Jesus has come to seek and to save us. Well, as we turn to the book of John, we see one more big idea from these four Gospels of why Jesus came. And it's John chapter 10, verse 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. This is going to be on page 896 in your pew Bible. John chapter 10, verse 10. We recognize Jesus has come to give our life to pay a debt we couldn't pay. He's come to seek and to save the lost. John 10.10 says this. It says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this passage is teaching us that Jesus came, that Jesus came to raise the dead and to give us life. That apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Him, we are dead in our sins. Now, we, look, we don't look dead, right? I mean, we have a pulse. We have a heart rate. You put a mirror in front of you, breathe it on, it steams up. Okay, we're still alive. But the Bible says we're dead. And in many ways, I mean, the popular zombies and all that, we kind of get this idea that we don't have real life. We're living, we're breathing and all that, but we're dead, And we're dead in what? Our sins. We're dead in our own lust. We're dead in our slavery. We're dead in our lostness. We don't know God. We're aliens from God. We're separated from Him because of our sins. But what has Jesus done? He has come to free us. He has come to find us. And what else has He come to do? He has come to give us life. To give us a new life. That we realize that Jesus, the transformation that He does in us, He takes us from death to death to life so that we will be different. And what we see in this is this, that by faith in Jesus, we are made fully alive in Him. This idea of being fully alive is, I think it's really significant. The the picture we get in Scripture is that before Christ, we're dead. After Christ, we're alive. We hear the world talk about becoming a Christian, and they would say it's, well, you're alive before you came to Jesus, and now you're dead. Because all the stuff you used to be so good at, you used to love, now you don't love that, and so now you're dead. And they're right to some level, I'm dead to this old self. But we realize, what does it mean to be fully alive? To be fully alive means that, that I truly know Jesus that I'm, I, I'm no longer slave to my own lust. I don't have to obey the temptations and desires of my heart. Have you learned that yet? I mean, I think that's something that as believers we must continue to learn, that I'm no longer a slave to my desires. I don't have to do what my body tells me I want it wants. I don't have to do what temptation tells me I want. Listen, contrary to popular opinion, everything that feels good is not good for you. That we realize that that we can be free of our sin and we can live separate from that. To be fully alive means to have the power now to say no. Being fully alive in Jesus means I now have direction in my relationships. That I now have, rather than trying to just figure it out on my own and figure out how do I make this marriage work, how do I make this friendship work, how do I make this family work, how do I make this in-law relationship work, how do I make this boss-employee relationship work, I don't have to figure that out. Jesus has given me answers. 
coming back to Ephesians 4 we looked at earlier. And we're put off this old self, put on this new self, being renewed in our mind. What are some principles it says right after that passage? Things like, be honest. Hmm. You think that would change relationships? Being honest? But I'm convinced oftentimes we want to play games with truth. Well, I don't want them to know that, so I'm not going to tell them all this. I'm not going to tell them the whole story. I'm just going to tell them the parts of the story I want them to know because I want to kind of control and manipulate this relationship so it goes my way. What usually happens when we do that? How many of you would say, that has worked out stellar in my life in relationships? How many of you would say, yeah, I've tried, it doesn't work? Right here, right? Recognizing that. We realize that the, the scriptures would tell us not only that we need to be honest, but to keep current. Then this relationship things in marriage and all that. What's it mean to be released from my sin? What's it mean to be found? What's it mean to be have life? Is that I can solve problems now. We're going to deal with problems when they come up, rather than just say, ah, I'm just I don't like to talk about problems. I don't want to deal with that. Or it's like, ah, they're going to get mad at me. And, and so what happens? I ignore the problem. I ignore the problem. I ignore the problem. It's going to go away. I'm going to be the bigger person. We convince ourselves that we're doing the right things. But what usually happens to those problems? They go away? Most of them don't. What happens? They actually get bigger, and we all get distorted in our thinking. Why? Because we think we know better than God. When God says, listen, keep current. Solve problems now. Because you're going to have to solve them sometime. Right? I mean, think about, I mean, I'll talk to the married couples. You have problems in your relationship right now. You're going to have to solve those at some point. And I would encourage you to work on them now. Because the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get. You're going to see it differently. You're going to become more hardened to your spouse. Your spouse is going to become more hardened to you. And as a result of that, other problems are going to pile on. And it's just going to get harder. God has a better way. He sets us free from having to do it our way. He has come to find us. He has come to give us life. And the life that's this living fully comes as we follow His truth. We would see also in that same Ephesians passage, it tells us that we need to act and not react. Oftentimes what happens, somebody says something, I just respond right away. I'm angry. I, I say something back. I shut down and all that. Rather than... Okay, God calls me to be kind, compassionate, tender-hearted. But do you know what they just said to me? Well, of course I know what they just said to you. And of course God knows what they just said to you because if he, if he didn't, he wouldn't say, be kind. I mean, listen, parents, when do you tell your kids to be kind? Like when you're just walking along the park, everything's going great, you're saying, hey, be kind. I mean, think of that. When do we tell them to be kind? When they're being nasty to somebody else. Right? Same thing with God. Why does God tell us to be kind? Because we have a bent to be a nasty. Why does he tell us to be compassionate? Because we would say, listen, they made their mess. They're going to deal with it. Right? And we realize kind and compassionate, tenderhearted. Listen, what I want us to see this morning is Jesus has come for us. Jesus loves us. As we see him come into Jerusalem on this last week, they're praising him. Praise Jesus. He is here. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. And they're rejoicing. And I will tell you that their rejoicing was exactly right. It was just timed wrong. 
Because they didn't understand that before Jesus was going to be this one who would save them now and fulfill all of this idea of being the Son of Man, that he was going to have to go through the cross. And now as we stand on this side of the cross, as we know what Jesus has done, that we would say in our hearts, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David that has loved us and has come to set us free and pay a debt we could never repay. He has come to find us. We are lost in darkness and he has come to free us. That we, in the midst of our deadness, we are corpses, that he has come to give full life. And I want to ask you this morning, are you living a full life in Jesus? I would ask you the question, are you living like you're somebody who's been found in Christ? Are you living like somebody who has been set free from the slavery to your lusts and your desires? Listen, for those of you who this morning are believers would say, I am. I want to rejoice with you. Just praise God. You know, praise God for his work in you, that he is helping you to live, live in step with his gospel. Not perfectly, but you're walking well with him. But I'm sure that there are also others here today who would call yourselves believers who you're stuck in sin. That you're kind of lost in where you are right now. You're not sure direction. You're not sure what you need to do next. That you feel more deadness in your life than life. If you're a believer and that's where you find yourself this morning, I want to encourage you to look to the Lord, to renew your relationship with Him, to say, God, help me. Help me to find this freedom that you have promised and I've experienced, but I'm, I'm stuck again, Lord. Help me to have the lights turn back on and to see things clearly. God, help me to, 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 to experience this life. And you'd be asking Him for these things. These are gifts that He wants to give us. And for those of you this morning who are still trying to sort out this Christianity thing and trying to figure out, not sure where you are in your relationship with Jesus, I want you to hear this morning that this Messiah, the eternal Son of God, has come from heaven, stepped out to come to serve you by giving his life for you to make you a son or a daughter. I want you to know that this God of heaven is not hiding somewhere, and for you to find him, he is seeking you. And I want you to know that if you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, that there is a Messiah, a Savior, who wants to free you from that and give you new life. And I would invite you this morning, as we sing this morning, to to pray that Jesus would forgive you and cleanse you of your sin and that he would adopt you, and you would become born again. And this Easter season of the year is a time of life, a wonderful time to be born again. And so as we sing in just a moment, I want to encourage you to be praying, praying in your own heart as we sing about a wonderful, merciful Savior, how he's been wonderful and merciful to you, how he is wonderful and merciful, and how he's going to continue to be wonderful and merciful. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Lord, to reflect on your goodness to us from these four Gospels, to learn that you have come to seek and save the lost. You have come to give life to those who are dead. You have come to pay a ransom for those who are enslaved. And God, I pray this morning as we that you would stir hearts. And Lord, this morning that you would help us to be reinvigorated in our passion for you as we head to Easter. 
and we celebrate the resurrection of our Messiah. Lord, I pray this morning, too, if there's some who are wrestling with some of these things, it might be profitable for them to come forward and to pray up front, to just draw a line in the sand and say, this is where I'm going, that they would have the freedom to do that this morning. If they would want to come and talk with somebody, that we would be happy to communicate with them. So, Lord, help us as we sing, stir our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.